again, everyone. Thank you for uh, joining us on this uh, Thursday afternoon for a seminar looking at one of the important challenges facing the health system in South Africa and fact, the world. As you know, we are now firmly established in our second wave in the COVID epidemic. And today we are going to look at an issue that um, has been increasingly occupying people's attention because uh, as we find the epidemic continues to unfold and to come back in second and even third waves and sometimes in ways that are even more damaging than the first. Uh, people are increasingly, look, increasingly looking to vaccines and other technologies as a way of um, solving the problem uh, for the world. So we're very, very pleased to have three excellent speakers today who are going to share with us their perspectives. Um, uh, Catherine Tomlinson is a consultant who's done some work for PHM doing a review of the situation in South Africa with regard to vaccines and health technologies. Candice Sehoma is with MSF and also part of the Fix the Patent Laws Alliance, and she'll be sharing with us perspectives around the capacity uh, locally to address some of the um, development of vaccines and the issues to do with intellectual property barriers. And Umanyana Rugege from Section 27, who's been very active in the Fix the Patent Laws Alliance as well, will also be sharing some of the national situation with us. So we have three speakers. We're going to um, let them speak for about 10 to 15 minutes each, and then we'll open it up for discussion. I do want to alert uh, participants that we are recording this uh, as part of a, a webinar series that PHM will make available afterwards. Uh, so so um, I hope that's okay with everybody. So I'm going to uh, kick off by asking Catherine to share with us a brief overview of a report that uh, she produced for PHM, and this is the um, official launch. And so over to you, Catherine. Okay, so um, as Leslie said, I'm going to speak about the situational analysis that I've worked on on behalf of People's Health Movement um, that looked at the, the situation in terms of access and equitable access to COVID-19 health technologies in South Africa. Um, and so the outcome of this work, well, the objective of the work was to learn more about um, where we are, what's happening in South Africa in terms of access to health technologies that are already available on the global market and needed in South Africa, um, such as PPE, diagnostic tests and ventilators, and also to look at potential barriers and enablers for um, health technologies under development, such as vaccines and treatments. The objectives also included to better understand how regulatory frameworks, so both in terms of for the, the frameworks for the regulation of health technologies and also for intellectual property, um, how they impact, how they impact and, and may impact access to health technologies in the country. And then also to look at how local manufacturing capacity and domestic research activities can impact on access. So the report, which is now available, is divided into two sections. And the first section provides an overview of the current situation in terms of access to health technologies um, for COVID-19 in South Africa. So it looks at um, up through the end of October of this year, access to PPE and ventilators um, and tests and, and diagnostic tests. And then the second um, part of the report looks at how the research development, development and manufacturing capacity, as well as legal frameworks um, in South Africa, impact and may impact on current access to health technologies and may impact on health technologies 
access to health technologies in the pipeline. So there were three sources of data that we used in the research. Um, and the first was that five in-depth interviews were conducted um, with officials from government, um, officials that are leading government's efforts to respond to COVID-19 and deliver, deliver the needed health technologies. Um, input was also sourced from stakeholders through phone and email communication and a review of grey literature related to health technology development and access for COVID-19 was undertaken, in South Africa was undertaken. Um, I did my best, but there's so much information out there. And I think we're very lucky to have so, so much information and so much coverage of what's happening that we'll really to learn lessons, um, to look back and learn lessons from. But there's, there's, a, there's a lot of information to, to, to shift through in terms of where we are and what the potential barriers and enablers for access to health technologies in South Africa are. And so really a key finding of the report for what the report found was that there is not one single barrier to access, but rather multiple overlapping challenges and barriers. Um, and these challenges include both between and within country inequalities. So we're seeing um, high income countries are outbidding lower income countries for health technologies. And within South Africa, there's also better access to health technologies in the private sector, which is better resourced than in the public sector. So for example, at the beginning of the epidemic, two thirds of the ventilators that were available in the country were in the private sector, which serves only 15% of the population and an estimated 80% of the number of critical care bed days left for the remainder of the year um, were in the private sector as well. There's also been governance challenges. Um, been, there's been widespread corruption reported in terms of the procurement of PPE. Um, there've been budget and cost barriers that are impacting. I mean, now we're seeing budgets are a big concern in terms of how South Africa is going to access and roll out vaccines in an equitable way. There's cost barriers to the health technologies. Regulatory delays emerged as an issue. So um, there being issues in terms of getting the products authorized for use in South Africa. Um, monopoly rights, so intellectual property barriers that impede access to health technologies is an issue. Um, and of course, South Africa's problematic patent laws. So despite what South Africa is saying, the leadership is taking an internet on an international stage in terms of speaking out against prohibitive um, monopoly rights that impede access to health technologies in South Africa. We're seeing ongoing delays in, in terms of reforming the country's Patents Act to, to fully incorporate health safeguards allowed under TRIPS. Um, there's also limited manufacturing, domestic manufacturing capacity in South Africa. So in some areas, there's good manufacturing capacity, but in other areas, there's very limited manufacturing capacity that impacts on South Africa's ability to um, scale up and deliver health technologies when it's unable to access them. Um, affordably and at sufficient supply um, from the international market. Um, and there's also additional challenges that are emerging in terms of um, the vaccine rollout and how vaccines are going to be rolled out. So there's critical unknowns related to what product is going to be rolled out, um, particularly through COVAX, what products South Africa will get access to, what the price of the vaccine is that South Africa will ultimately get access to um, and those that will impact how many individuals are, are the prices going to impact how many individuals South Africa is going to be able to provide the vaccine to 
There's also a lack of existing delivery pathways. So our vaccine delivery pathways are really focused on childhood vaccines. Um, there aren't delivery pathways really available in terms of how to reach the broad general public. So that will be a massive undertaking. There's supply chain challenges, particularly in South Africa, um, with these ultra-cold vaccines. Um, it's unlikely that South Africa will be able to roll out vaccines that require these ultra-cold cold store, storage and supply chains um, because they're not, currently, they're not currently available in South Africa. There's also issues with reliability of electricity um, in South Africa, as we know. Um, there's vaccine hesitancy research that has been undertaken in South Africa. Um, has shown that South Africa has higher rates of vaccine hesitancy than there are internationally. Um, and then, despite all of the public attention and awareness around vaccines, the need for vaccines, there's been limited community and public engagement regarding how the vaccines should be delivered and also how they should be rationed, because we know they're not going to be enough vaccines for everyone um, at the beginning of the rollout and potentially for, for a long time. And so there hasn't really been that much, there hasn't really been forums and engagements to enable community voices to ensure that they're heard in terms of identifying who the priority populations are. Um, so I'm going to give a snapshot of three health technologies um, that have been highlighted in the report. And these aren't the vaccines, but the lessons learned from these health technologies. These are the situation that South Africa has experienced to date in terms of access for these health technologies. And the lessons learned from these health technologies um, can impact thinking and how, how civil society prepares um, for monitoring and advocacy around COVID-19 vaccines. Um, so what we saw early on in, in the pandemic was South Africa was quite confident that it would have adequate capacity to, um, to scale up diagnosis of COVID-19 using the PCR platforms. Um, and this was because South Africa had already invested um, a lot of money into, into the Cepheid and Roche diagnostic platforms, um, which are both high through, throughput platforms and can rapidly um, run multiple tests at the same time. Um, and so we saw that the NHLS put out a statement speaking to how well prepared South Africa was. We saw that um, the chair of the Portfolio Committee from Health said that South Africa's investment in the separate machines for TV turned out to be a stroke of genius when the company was later, or its COVID tests that could be used on those platforms were authorized. Um, so there was an initially quite a lot of um, positivity around South Africa's position to scale up diagnostics for COVID-19. But then what we saw was South Africa was unable to access adequate numbers of diagnostic, um, the consumables that are required to, to run the tests on the platforms. So the cartridges, the reagents, and the other consumables. Um, and this, this was a, is, is particularly concerning for, for these platforms because these are closed platforms. So you can have open diagnostic platforms and you can have closed diagnostic platforms. With open diagnostic platforms, the NHLS itself and other companies can develop the reagents and the tests to be used on the platforms. But the Cepheid and the Roche platforms are closed platforms, so there's nowhere to buy the, the reagents and the cartridges from other than those companies. 
the companies weren't able to provide adequate supply, and so South Africa found itself sitting on a big shortage. Um, and this is a big equity issue, particularly for CEPIT, because the South Africa was the first um, country to roll out the CEPIT diagnostic platforms at a national scale. We were the country, we were the country where we undertook a lot of the initial trialing of the diagnostic platforms when they were initially developed for TB. But then when there was more demand from wealthier countries, we kind of came last in the queue, um, despite all that historical goodwill and investment from the country that enabled the, the company to keep growing and investing in its diagnostics. I mean, yes, there was lots of investment from, 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 from many different sources. But despite that, South Africa found itself um, kind of far back in the queue, um, and so did other African countries. So the head of the Africa CDC um, made a statement in April saying that the collapse of global cooperation and the failure of international solidarity have shoved Africa out of the diagnostics market. Lack of access to diagnostics is Africa's Achilles heel. This is not a question of demanding charities. African countries have funds to pay for agents but cannot buy them. Um, one of the stakeholders that, I, that we communicated with for the report said, my biggest disappointment during the pandemic were the dye shortages of both Genex, the cartridges, and Roche Cobus kits. One, the ideal tool for near patient rapid testing, and the other one ideal for centralized labs. And so, um, as I mentioned earlier, there's often multiple overlapping access challenges. Um, and so the challenges that we saw in terms of access to diagnostics in South Africa was, um, there were internationally, there were the supply shortages of the, of the test materials needed, but there were also these nationalist procurement approaches which pitted countries against each other. And there, was, there wasn't any, and there continues to be no, little transparency around the distribution of the test materials and whether the distribution of the test materials, sale of distribution of the test materials to countries is actually kind of on par with need. And from what we've seen, it seems it really wasn't in the early days of the pandemic. And so there's a need for greater transparency around, around the, the purchase and, and distribution of the, of the test materials. There's also been inequitable distribution of resources between public and the private sector in South Africa. So South Africa in June was seeing delays of over nine days for tests to be returned um, in, in the public sector from the public sector labs um, because of the massive backlogs that they were experiencing, whereas at that time, you could you could go and buy a COVID test in the private sector for a thousand rand and you would receive results in one to two days. So the inequitable distribution of resources between South Africa's public and private sector further compounded the challenge. Um, then again, what we saw was monopoly rights and trade secrets prevented the local manufacturing of needed test materials. So we know that South Africa has has approached Seppin and Roche in order to produce the, the materials that were needed domestically. And so far, that hasn't moved forward, um, reportedly due to a lack of willingness and interest by Seppard and Roche. Um, and South Africa hasn't used kind of the hammer in terms of using the com competition law or compulsory licensing to, to force the companies to do so. Um, in the Netherlands, where there were similar shortages of reagents that um, were impeding the scale-up of diagnostics using the Roche platforms, um, the issue was actually referred to the Competition Commission, and after the Competition Commission took it up, Roche agreed to provide the recipe to, to enable to enable laboratories in the Netherlands to produce the reagents themselves um, if they requested it. Um, but another challenge that we do have in South Africa is we do have 
limited local manufacturing capacity to, to produce these, these reagents and cartridges. Um, and this is in part due to kind of a lack of ongoing investment into developing that sector um, in the country. Um, so, this, so South Africa has taken a number of steps to overcome, to overcome the challenges that it's, that, it faced, that it's faced in terms of the accessing diagnostics. One is that it's adopted stricter criteria for COVID-19 testing after its initial um, broad community screening um, attempts. And then it's also diversified its test materials and platforms. So it sought to reduce its reliance on a few companies um, and have more products from more companies, more platforms from more companies and more open platforms that can be, that different test materials can be used on. It's also supporting R&D to enable local manufacture of test materials, um, not for the Stefan and Roche platforms, but for other platforms that, for which South Africa can produce test materials for. Um, although there are benefits of the Stefan and Roche platforms that other platforms don't necessarily have, and that's the ability to, um, the, the, everything gets put in, into a cartridge, you don't have to, it's just, don't have, there's fewer steps within the laboratory, the results are, are are quick and you can run multiple multiple hundreds of tests at the same time and there's broad access to these testing platforms across South Africa. So it really is a pity that South Africa wasn't able to access the testing materials that it needed um, to really scale up testing on those platforms. Um, what we've also seen is African countries have pooled their buying power as they found themselves unable to access test materials. What, what they did was come together to pool their buying power and now um, and established the African Medical Supplies platform um, through which pre-secured certain stocks of, they would use the pool buying power to pre-secure stocks of different health technologies, including test materials um, that African countries could buy using that platform. And South Africa's also used that platform to access um, diagnostic materials. Another challenge that we've seen is, rem is for remdesivir. Um, and so, as we know, the WHO found that, that this treatment has no impact on mortality, but it's also, you know, activists, treatment access activists and health access advocates, equity access advocates are, equity advocates are in a difficult space in terms of telling the stories and really showing how monopoly rights are impeding access to health technologies because of the fact that the landscape is changing so rapidly. And so treatments that were promising are no longer promising. And so it becomes more difficult to make the case around them. But still, despite the fact that it's no longer seen as a promising treatment, there is still, when, when it was thought to be promising, IP barriers and cost barriers prevented access to this product in South Africa. So the product was made available and may still be made available to private sector patients through Section um, 21 authorizations. So Section 21 authorizations are a way um, that South Africa is a mechanism that South Africa uses to authorize and enable the use of unregistered health technologies in the country. So the product was available to private sector patients, but not public sector patients. So there, that's um, a big area of inequality in the country because 80% of the population accesses healthcare through the public sector. So 80% of the population didn't have access to this treatment that was thought to be promising for COVID-19 at the time. And the reason that they didn't have it, a big group, part of the reason that they didn't have it was that it was seen as too expensive. 
and it was too expensive in large part due to the ongoing IP barriers on the treatment. So Gilead, the, Gilead, the company that, um, that owns the patents on, on Remdesivir, um, licensed a number of companies to, provided voluntary licenses to companies to produce generic versions, but because they only provided voluntary licenses to a limited number of companies, it really didn't drive the price down as far as it could go when you see um, broad, non-exclusive licensing or kind of the removal of patent barriers on health technologies. And so the cost, cost of, Gilead's, of Gilead's product at the time was um, 50,000 Rand for a full course in South Africa versus around 5,000 Rand for a full course of syphilis product. Well, that's a big difference. Um, the cost of production is estimated to only be 150 Rand. So at 150 Rand, the treatment could, be, could have been provided to far more people. And so what South Africa actually said at the TRIPS Council meeting on the 16th of October was that despite receiving significant public funding of at least 70 million, Gilead has signed secretive bilateral licenses for Remdesivir with a few com generic companies of its choosing that excludes nearly half of the world's population from its licensed territories. Much of Gilead's supply has also been reserved for very rich nations. As a result, to date, most developing countries have barely received any supply of remdesivir. The prices of remdesivir are also prohibitively high. Um, and so this is just another, another example of how health technology access was impeded, has been impeded, health technology access for COVID-19 has been impeded by a co combination of factors, including IP rights, inequitable um, access between South Africa's public and private sector, there have been international supply shortages of the medicine, um, and then price barriers. There's also been the issue of the fact that the medicine did receive significant public funding, but there weren't public financing conditionalities to ensure that it was affordable and accessible um, after it was developed. So that is another, another, another access issue that emerges, the need for public finance financing conditionalities. And then when treatments aren't affordable and accessible after receiving public financing, there's also a lack of willingness, particularly in the US, to use walk-in rights um, to overcome the IP barriers that are impeding access to more affordable generic products. Um, another health technology that we looked at in the report with a continuous positive airway pressure, so the CPAP machines, which were um, used in place of ventilators with, with better outcomes um, because they, did, they didn't, don't require intubation, they're less invasive. Um, as I said, there were two-thirds of the ventilators in the country at the start of the pandemic were located in the private sector um, and there were just over 3,000 ventilators in the country. Um, Early on, government identified that this was going to be a big issue and access to ventilators was going to be a big issue um, in its COVID response. And it estimated that during the peak, South Africa could need up to 20,000 ventilators. So the Department of Trade and Industry and Competition um, put out a spec and invited bids for what is known as the National Ventilator Project. Project and part of what enables this rapid response and enabled companies to develop these CPAP machines so rapidly was the fact that there were already open source designs that they could use. And so the DTIC bids 
took it, took these open source designs into account, the, how they assess the bids, they, they use these open source designs, and so did the companies that, that ultimately received, received that were successful and received the tenders. So um, I think this is, a, this is just an example of how when knowledge is open, when you have open access to knowledge and it's not guarded behind restrictive intellectual property barriers, it really can enable access to health technologies and in this case enable kind of rapid response from government in terms of supporting the development and the rollout of these technologies. Um, but one issue that we saw was that despite, despite the fact that local companies had the capacity to develop them, which enabled local development, and the fact that there was funding from government, there was a delay in the rollout of these technologies. And the initiative, the National Ventilator Project, initially report, reportedly missed the first peak in rolling out the, the CPAP machines to all the health facilities that they were designated to go to. And that was because of regulatory delays. And so um, there were reportedly delays from SAPRA, the South African Health Products Regulatory Authority, both in terms of providing um, guidance for what was required for authorization of ventilators and CPAP machines, and also in terms of authorizing the machines. So what we saw in the case of the CPAP machines was they were, um, there were both access barriers and there were and there were access enablers. So the access barriers included inequitable health technology access between the public and private sector, regulatory delays, um, and there were also procurement challenges. The access enablers included rapid identification of the problem and response by government, open access knowledge, and local manufacturing capacity and private sector support. But even now that there are 20,000 of these CPAP machines that have been distributed around the country, there still are barriers in terms of access to, to, to oxygen support for patients that need them, particularly in rural areas where accessing the health facilities um, that have these machines and have the oxygen in place can, can be challenging. Um, and so what one of, the, one of the stakeholders said was the big constraint if we had really been hit hard by the peak would not have been the devices, it would have been the oxygen supply not the availability of oxygen, but the actual infrastructure in hospitals. Um, Rudessa and MSF have also raised the need for on-site supplementary oxygen um, support in, in rural areas so that patients don't have to travel long distances that take a long time to reach hospitals that have access to, to these health technologies. Um, Catherine, I wonder so, if you could yes. wrap up in a few minutes because we've got two other speakers and you want to uh, reserve. Yes, this is my last slide. Apologies. Okay. So, um, the lessons that we can learn from the experiences to date can help strengthen South Africa's ongoing response to COVID, prepare for subsequent surges, and also help us prepare for the vaccine rollout. And also, what we've seen so far is that civil society has played and can continue to play around purpose role in terms of monitoring and highlighting access challenges, advocating for reforms to address access challenges. Civil societies play a really important role in this area, which I'm sure my colleagues will speak to, and ensuring that community preferences and voices are heard and accounted for in the COVID-19 response. Thank you. Okay, thanks so much, Catherine. This was a really excellent presentation for a really excellent report. It's really going to be very helpful for us.
We're going to move on and invite uh, Candice Sahoma from MSF to take the floor and share with us uh, the perspectives of MSF and Fix the Patent Law Alliance and the work they've been doing. Thanks, Candice. Hi everyone, so Andy Thahoma is introduced and I'm the Access Campaign Advocacy Officer working for MSF based in Johannesburg. So today I'll just be taking you through the work that we're doing as um, Fix the Patent Laws, which is a coalition um, that MSF is part of. And also just taking you through some of the work that we have been doing as MSF, um, particularly looking at local manufacturing. So yeah, so as mentioned that MSF is part of a coalition called Fix the Patent Laws, which is a joint coalition of about 40 organizations ranging from TB, cancer, HIV, as well as, well as mental health organizations. Their coalition seeks to address the inequality in access to treatment for a range of diseases, including HIV, TB, and cancer and to also address the structural barriers that continue to undermine access to medicine. And this we do through various, in various ways, like um, uh, writing reports, picketing outside um, government departments, calling for price reduction of um, certain medicine, um, and various other ways, engaging with media and um, having, I mean, lobbying um, government officials to to consider public health in their in their policies. And what we're basically demanding is that the government fix our national patent laws. Um, the laws must be changed to include all the life-saving provisions in the TREPS agreement. And this work, um, the fix the patent law, has been doing for about over um, ten years now. So what is wrong with South African patent law currently? So South Africa blindly hands out drug patents even when they're not deserving. Um, this makes uh, medicine, unfortunately, unaffordable and South Africans have to pay the price. And we have realized that this serves as a barrier. And one of the studies that we have done as Fix the Patent Law also looked into um, some of the granting of patents in South, Africa, in South Africa in comparison to other countries like Brazil. And in 2008 alone, South Africa granted about uh, 2,442 patents on medicine versus from 2003 to 2008. Brazil only granted about 273 patents on medicine, which is, highlights basically the, um, how flawed our patent system is. What we have in South Africa is called a depository system, which grants pharma patents without an um, ex uh, extensive examination system. Although, um, South, I mean, the Department of Trade and Industry has taken a step to um, to recruit about 20 patent examiners. Um, we still haven't, we still don't have any um, examination uh, processes in place. Um, and as those uh, patent examiners are still currently going undergoing training from various institutions. And recently MSF as well as uh, Third World Network hosted a patent examiner's training focusing on, um, uh, focusing on the public health lens um, when it comes to examination progress, I mean, examination. So in addition to con not conducting uh, substantive examination, um, South Africa also has a weak patentability um, criteria. It also has no pre or post patent opposition mechanism, meaning that if uh, uh, patents are granted, there's no mechanisms in place for us to um, challenge the granting of those patents. Um, and also in terms of granting of a compulsory license, uh, so the current system in place is quite complex. And we also know that, um, that it would take about three years 
costing about over a million to um, grant a compulsory license. So what we essentially calling for is for a better system, a, a better administrative process that would enable um, an expedited um, uh, granting of a compulsory license. So, so those are some of the stuff that we uh, are calling for um, as fix the patent law for South Africa's patent, I mean, for pa South Africa's patent law to consider in terms of um, uh, ensuring access to these life-saving medicine. Um, so moving on to the next bit, we'll look at the local manufacturing initiatives in South Africa, especially during these COVID-19 uh, COVID times. Um, so what we have been looking at um, at MSF is uh, looking at initiatives around vaccine manufacturing and diagnostics, as well as drug uh, manufacturing. Um, and I'll mainly look at the diagnostic and vaccine um, aspects um, on this presentation. And what we have um, gathered is, I mean, what we've, I mean, we've been looking at, at various things, uh, mainly some of the initiatives that South Africa has been, I mean, doing uh, recently, we had like this, um, I mean, the, uh, the ministerial advisory committee focusing a lot in terms of um, vaccine development um, and also uh, prioritizing um, SA vaccine uh, vaccine manufacturing in the country. As you all know that we in South Africa have um, uh, one vaccine manufacturer which was publicly funded which is BioVac. Um, as, we, as it stands what we know is that BioVac is still in discussion with, an undisclosed, uh, with undisclosed companies as well as CEPI about a possible tech transfer to enable them to do manufacturing of um, COVID-19 vaccines. And what we also mean by manufacturing is not like the entire process, but only limited to a fill and finish of which is basically the last stage of the of the of the of the process. Uh, what the South African government also did is that they have uh, announced at the Consortium for COVID-19 Clinical Trials, they announced the funding of about 25 million towards BioVax capacity to strengthen its manufacturing capacity to support um, the continent. Um, so this uh, funding basically went into procuring equipment to upgrade the facility to manufacture about 30 million um, doses. And this uh, basically in preparation for a tech transfer by Q3 next year. So the DSI is also prioritizing strengthening Africa's manufacturing capacity and its initial, initial plan is to host a webinar which will be happening tomorrow in partnership with the WHO, AFRO, the AU, NEPAD, Africa CDC, BioVac, um, SADC as well as MSF will be part of that discussion and this is really to speak on ways in which we could um, foster um, Africa's manufacturing capacity given the current um, times. And what we also continue to realize is also how the South African government is also acknowledging and prioritizing um, issues around um, you know, intellectual property. And that's what MSF has been asked to speak on um, during this session is to look at the legal frameworks to increase local manufacturing and basically speaking on IP barriers. And when it comes to vaccine manufacturing, uh, another announcement that was also made recently by the South African um, president was um, Aspen's uh, uh, capacity to locally fill and finish uh, the Johnson & Johnson candidate vaccine. Um, but what we see is that Johnson & Johnson continue, continues to own the IP 
uh, of this particular vaccine, which basically means that they will um, determine the distribution and allocation around the product. So Aspen doesn't have the sort of authority and power to decide on that. That will be solely on Johnson & Johnson's hands. Um, so but then Aspen uh, will only be able to produce validation batches and then move into commercial production late March, early April in 2021. Um, they've indicated that they will look into manufacture, I mean, with Johnson & Johnson, they would be able to manufacture about 1 billion in 2021, and Aspen will contribute about 300, and 300 million of the, of the 1 billion, which is about 30% of that batch. Um, so currently as it stands, as I mentioned that, um, Aspen doesn't really have the power to engage much on how the vaccine will be allocated. Only Johnson & Johnson will, um, will engage directly with the government if that is not happening in terms of how this, um, the, the, the vaccine will be uh, I mean, allocated. But I think what leaves much in question is to if whether South Africa and even the continent will stand to benefit from this agreement between Johnson & Johnson and Aspen, considering that Johnson & Johnson has entered into bilateral deals already with high-income countries, um, I think it leaves much into question of whether we will get to access to the vaccine despite during the fill and finish locally. So I think that also highlights some of the, the, the issues around IP and how that also could still serve you know, as a barrier despite you know, um, having these, these contracts. Um, so in some of the work that we've been doing when it comes to vaccine, uh, vac I mean, uh, um, access to vaccine, one being the COVAX facility, which is, uh, which is uh, an institution that was uh, run by Gavi. So the work that we've been doing here is mainly just look, um, trying to engage with um, different governments um, from different countries, uh, specifically looking at self-financing countries as well as your a, um, AMC countries. Um, and I think what we've been doing here is trying to really uh, get, because I think there's there's been quite a lot of um, concerns around how not transparent the COVAX facility is and some um, issues, concerns that governments um, have. And one of the, the works that we've been doing has trying to connect different countries, um, specifically your self-financing countries, to try and get them to sort of have a, a voice, um, particularly in the, um, the governing, governing structures of this particular um, structure. Um, but also not limiting it to that, looking at more long-term plan, um, because the COVID facility is also quite a short-term um, uh, sort of solution, which mainly looks at uh, uh, procurement. But how do we also look at a more sort of long-term um, plan in terms of pandemic preparedness for, um, for the future? And that is mainly looking at, sorry, so uh, pandemic preparedness for the future, mainly looking at legacy manufacturing facilities and how we can advocate for more sort of um, financing and funding to go into capacity, better capacitating uh, uh, institutions like BioVac to better prepare them for the future um, in, in, in case of another pandemic. Um, another bit is a call for transparency on allocation and distribution of these vaccines. And then also lastly, leveraging on clinical trials done in SA. As you know, that there are some clinical trials that are being done in South Africa and also they're also being publicly funded. So how do we use that? I think Candice has fallen off. Uh, when she comes back, she can just say a few comments about what she would have said. 
Uh, and perhaps we can move on to Umunyana. Hi, everyone. Thanks to Leslie and others at PHM for inviting us. To look at the global context, I think we should always start with looking at the state of cases and deaths. Today, as of today, there are 68.8 million cases globally. Um, I don't think that was what we envisaged when this all started to come down in February this year. Um, there have been 1.57 million deaths globally. In South Africa, we have over 800,000 cases. And as you know, these cases are going up and up and up, and we are you know, going into a second wave just as we go into the festive season, which is very concerning. And there have been 22,574 deaths from COVID in South Africa to date. Um, so when we look at the international context, we should also remember that we, many countries around the world and South Africa in particular, um, has signed on to the International Covenant on Economic, Social and Cultural Rights, um, which contains a few relevant provisions. The first is the kind of right to health um, within that covenant. It says every person has a right to the enjoyment of the highest attainable standard of physical and mental health. Um, that's very similar to, to different um, national constitutions, but this is where the, the main provision is um, around the right to healthcare and international law. So states who are parties to the, the covenant have an obligation to take steps for the prevention, treatment, and control of epidemic, endemic, and occupational and other diseases. So that obviously would apply to COVID-19. Um, it's categorized as a pandemic, um, which is much more widespread than an epidemic. So that's specifically uh, provided for in, the, um, in this covenant. So in addition, states have a duty to address barriers to access to healthcare, um, including IP. And what General Comment 17 says about that is that people have a right to basically benefit from, from science and the developments and innovation that happens. So there is a, there is a, um, a, a balance to be struck here between the development of the science in relation to developing new medicines and vaccines, but also on what the benefit is to humankind. Um, and that there can't just be um, a kind of profit agenda um, when there is a, a pandemic, an epidemic, or any other kind of um, large-scale disease around the world. Um, so all states have a duty to take those necessary steps to deal with a pandemic like COVID-19. Um, and I would say that that includes rolling out available treatments, as we've seen, and vaccines that are coming online and being approved. In South Africa, we have our Section 27 of the Constitution, which guarantees the right of access to healthcare services. And in that provision, um, it says that the state must take reasonable legislative and other measures within available resources to progressively realize the right to health. Um, and, you know, we look at the whole of the Bill of Rights because all of the rights contained in the Bill of Rights are interdependent. 
Um, and so we also look at things like equality and the pro prohibition of unfair discrimination when, when we think about who should get um, access to a limited resource. The vaccines that come to South Africa will be very limited, the treatments are limited, etc. So we have to understand that there's a balance there, but there's also an obligation on the state to use its available resources to ensure that particularly the most vulnerable people have access to these treatments and vaccines. So we talk about TRIPS a lot. This is the trade-related aspects of intellectual property. Um, and it's, you know, all the countries that are party to the World Trade Organization, which is most countries in the world, um, have signed up to the TRIPS agreement. And what it does is essentially provide for a legal monopoly um, for a minimum of 20 years that must be enforced by state parties. So the, in each country, there will be an application process at a patent office where a pharmaceutical company in this case um, would apply for a patent and the minimum amount of time that can be enforced is 20 years. But of course we know that there are additional 20 year monopolies that can be added onto the, onto the initial patent. Um, and patents can be given for um, an innovation, but also a change like if, if, if there's a, a drug that is made into a pediatric version. Um, in, in some countries, including in South Africa, that secondary use would be able to receive a patent for an additional 20 years. Um, but also what, what is available to us within the TRIPS agreement is the Doha Declaration on Public Health, um, which says that we agree that the TRIPS agreement does not and should not prevent members from taking measures to protect public health. Accordingly, while reiterating our commitments to the TRIPS agreement, we affirm that the agreement can and should be interpreted and implemented in a manner supportive of WTO members' right to protect public health, and in particular, to promote access to medicines for all. Um, so when we, when we talk about TRIPS and patents and all of that, um, you know, we, we often think about the side of the monopoly holder. Um, to say that, you know, these monopolies have to be enforced. Um, companies have, you know, spent money on research and development and come up with innovations in medicine, and therefore they need to be rewarded. But again, there is this balance that has to be struck between the science and the development of medicines and, and health technologies and that reward, but also having this balance around ensuring that the, the technology and innovation actually benefits people. Um, and in many cases, these are life-saving um, drugs. And so they should be available even within this kind of WTO framework. Um, so I think that um, others have covered the, the, um, some of the IP issues. Um, what, we, what we see in, in, in discussions um, right now with COVID is that pharmaceutical companies um, are saying that IP is not an issue, intellectual property is not an issue. Um, you know, they have done all this innovation, they deserve a reward, and in any case, you know, don't worry about it, these, these patents won't be um, an issue. But we have seen that there's already been patents um, applied for and granted around the world. 
uh, Regeneron, the antibody test that was famously given to President Trump, has been patented and there are already disputes around um, those patents because some of this new technology that's being used, the mRNA technology, um, actually comes from um, work that was done in, in the public sector in the U.S. And so, you know, there's this concern about this technology and whether it's even patentable. Um, and then disputes around who owns those patents. Remdesivir is another example. There have been patents granted on remdesivir, um, which was originally developed to, to treat Ebola. Um, and so there were already patents and there have been additional patents that have been granted in at least 70 developing countries. And that's um, research done by the Third World Network and uh, they've discovered that there they are patents at least until 2023, um, but obviously that could, that could be extended further. Um, there are also voluntary licenses um, on remdesivir, but as we know with voluntary licenses, there, is, uh, and, uh, there are always exclusions for countries that won't be able to, to benefit from those uh, voluntary licenses. So what are the mechanisms to address the intellectual property barriers? The one that, we, that has received a lot of attention lately um, and that is in discussion at the WTO at the moment is the coronavirus waiver that has been proposed by the South African government and the Indian government and was joined by Kenya and Eswatini as co-sponsors. And essentially it is asking for the whole of the WTO countries to come together and agree to waive the enforcement of intellectual property and have that as an option to countries that would require it and that need it in their national environments. And as I said before, the Doha Declaration recognizes that we should be able to have these flexibilities. Um, and, that, and so this waiver is aimed at um, ensuring that countries can collaborate with each other um, on the basis of, wa of, of waived patents or other intellectual property and in, to ensure that they can have access to either treatments um, like remdesivir or, other or, or diagnostics, for example, um, as well as vaccines. Now, there's been a lot of opposition, particularly from rich countries that host a lot of these um, big pharmaceutical companies. And these are the same countries that have taken up over 50% of the future stock of vaccines. So it's a small number of rich nations that are themselves, um, as, as Catherine has said, doing bilateral deals with pharmaceuticals, but at the same time, they are opposing just an ability for countries to be able to take these steps um, and to do so on a basis that um, can be standardized for all countries so that each country doesn't have to go and take, um, you know, take time to try and develop um, waivers within their countries, but essentially to give us a template um, so that countries can take that into into their own uh, national legal frameworks and do as they need to um, to protect public health. So that's one um, position that's being supported by um, most of the developing countries, middle-income countries, and um, global civil society as well. 
Um, and there's been the, the CTAP um, initiative as well that's been launched by the World Health Organization. Um, and that is essentially a way to pool um, technology and know-how. Um, and, you know, the, what we've learned from, from working on, on, on intellectual property and access to medicines is that the know-how that comes with the technology is just as important. So if Aspen, for example, is, is going to be able to produce the Johnson & Johnson drugs, they need the know-how and technology um, to be able to do so. And so this, this initiative is intended to pool that technology so that it can be accessed by um, generic companies or any companies, um, because we know that whilst there are those big companies like Pfizer um, that are, are producing these drugs, these vaccines, they can't produce enough drugs um, and vaccines for the whole world. And we know that we need to get as many vaccines out across the world as possible if we're going to be able to come out on the other side of this uh, global pandemic. Lastly, I would, I would also say that one of the key things that's happening on the, on the global front is that civil society organizations, particularly in the North, are advocating for transparency of agreements between their governments and the pharmaceutical industry. Um, and this is really important because the, those countries, public, um, the taxpayers have actually put in billions of dollars into the development and commercialization of vaccines. Moderna, for example, is was 100% um, funded by taxpayers and it only after it was discovered that they did not disclose all the relevant public investment um, as they should have in terms of the law, they then committed to not enforcing the patents that they had received for the technology. I believe that Candace has spoken about um, the COVAX mechanism, which um, the CTAP mechanism pulls the know-how and, and intellectual property, and the COVAX is a, a procurement um, pool to enable countries like South Africa and low and middle income countries um, to procure subsidized vaccines. So Gavi is the, is the vaccine alliance. Um, they work a lot on childhood vaccines and enable countries, particularly developing countries, to actually have access to childhood vaccines. And so they're playing this role um, in the COVID pandemic. Um, I think we've covered most of that, um, but I think what's important here is that there, there is no commitment to sharing IP and know-how and technology transfers, um, whereas the CTAP mechanism is intended to share that kind of information. There's also, um, uh, Catherine also spoke about this. Um, I think it's important to say that civil society should have a role in these various mechanisms and does have a voice, but it's very limited. And so organizations that are working at that level are pushing for a greater voice um, and trying to include the people who are most affected. So those people who are affected by COVID um, and who have been survivors or have uh, long-term COVID um, uh, symptoms. Um, so civil society also has a role in the national context, like in South Africa, we have the Fix the Patent Laws campaign that's been doing this work along with other organizations um, to demand transparency, to push for law reform, uh, make sure that we, are, we have an open procurement system that is free of corruption, um, and also 
and in countries that have funded the commercialization of vaccines, you know, like the US and a, a large part of the European Union, um, those, you know, civil societies pressing for um, reasonable agreements um, for, on pricing of these vaccines that takes into account um, the public money that's already been spent. Um, and there's activism that's happening in many countries across the world, one of which is the people's vaccine um, that especially is pressurizing governments and pharmaceutical companies to act responsibly and to ensure access across the world um, to the vaccines that are coming out and will be approved and are being approved every day. So these are imminent issues to be addressed. And um, I'll end there just to say that there's a lot of work to be done and I look forward to the discussion. Thank you so, so much, Romaniana. That was really an excellent uh, presentation to, to look at the international context. Candice, you are back. I don't know if you want to add a few comments before you dropped off due to your laptop collapsing. So yeah, I was just talking about the work that we're doing on clinical trials, uh, mainly calling for transparency on the clinical um, trial data, as well as the funding that goes into clinical trials, and also using that, you know, some of the work that has been do being done in South Africa, the clinical trials being done in South Africa, and how we can leverage um, on that work being done um, for uh, better access, uh, mainly looking at affordability and some of the conditions probably looking at um, a possible tech transfer. So, yeah, so that's the bit on the clinical trials bit that we are working on. Um, and then moving on to diagnostics. So with the diagnostics bit, um, so the work uh, has been looking at some of the initiatives that have been taken by the South African government, uh, mainly, um, I think it was early in the year where in May they were doing like a, a, a grant program where they granted, I think, about uh, funding to about two local manufacturers um, that would be able to uh, locally manufacture um, PCR reagents, and that is K-Bio as well as, um, as Ostel Pharmaceuticals. That process is still underway. Um, I think one of the one of the issues of bottlenecks that is still um, serves as a barrier in terms of them putting their products in the market um, is not so much on IP, but more on the regulatory bit. I think they've been having some back and forth, and hence um, till today, since I think July, they've been trying to get some regulatory approval from um, Sapra, and that um, is still ongoing. And uh, one other aspect of it, and I think it's an initiative that was taken by the Department of Science and Innovation, looking at the fact that they are using uh, gene expert cartridges, um, which is uh, also used for TB and now is being used for COVID-19 testing. Um, considering the shortages and they were not able to get, you know, enough supplies, Catherine had, has mentioned from CFID. Um, one of the initiatives that they had taken um, was to reach out to, to, to um, CFID to uh, explore the possibilities of a possible tech transfer because South Africa would have the capacity to locally manufacture some um, gene expert cartridges. Um, however, CFAD hasn't been responsive um, in that front. Um, so one of the work that we have been doing and are still doing is trying to gather some country experiences, mainly looking at the Southern African region as to 
what are their experiences in terms of accessing these cartridges um, to try and build on evidence and um, possibly in the future looking at the possibilities of um, having a campaign targeted at tech, I mean, targeted at certified calling for tech transfer um, to South Africa. So that's the work on the, on the diagnostics front. Um, and then I won't go into detail about the TRIPS wave. I think Umyana has covered that very well. Um, and I think with this particular work, um, considering that there has been some you know, opposition from your high income countries um, and some supports you know, from um, some African countries, uh, one of the initiatives that we are sort of trying to push is to try and to get the African Union support and endorsement of this um, particular waiver, as we would, would have some sort of um, power, I mean, uh, some more grounds than just having, you know, individual countries sort of supported. So we've been doing some work in the background to try and get the South African, I mean, the African Union to endorse as they had um, initially done also during um, an AU summit earlier, um, I think around June, where they acknowledged um, the role that um, IP and how it actually serves as a barrier in accessing and upscaling manufacturing capacities in Africa. And as one of the priorities, um, you know, focusing on 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 um, intellectual property and doing away with that um, has been a priority. But it, you know, um, it would be it would serve some. Um, it would serve that I think the continent well to also have a voice um, from the African Union um, pushing and supporting this particular particular waiver. And also coming back to South Africa, the work that we've been doing with Fix the Patent Law is, I mean, writing to the minister, the president, and also um, also launched a, a petition that basically calls for um, for for South Africa to have a moratorium on 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 these COVID nineteen um, uh, products. And currently, we have about. 371 signatures so we're aiming for about 400 and i'll also share a link on the chat to try and get people to sign on um to yeah to support this call for south africa to i mean fix to expedite the 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 process of um amending uh, or rather fixing our patent our patent laws but also to to have some a voice, much stronger voice in terms of um influencing some of the processes at the au level so thank you Thanks so much, Candice. I think we've had three really important uh, presentations uh, sketching different aspects of a common problem uh, and how important it is for us to be able to respond in a coherent way. So I'm going to open it up for discussion. I notice there are some comments already, questions, but if people want to raise comments or questions now, just put up your hand on Zoom and I will give you the floor. So Candice, I think this was directed at you. Incorporating TRIPS flexibilities into South Africa IP legislation, how far is the country moving ahead? I think you've said we're not moving very far ahead, but maybe you want to elaborate on that a little bit. So at the moment, as it stands, we have an IP policy that was passed in 2018 in May. Since then, there hasn't really been much progress. You know, I think, as I mentioned that uh, at the moment, we are calling now for the law reform process because the, the IP policy doesn't really give us much, you know, we can't really exercise, you know, what's on the IP policy until that is um, put into our national law. 
and that process is still um, i mean it's still in i mean an, an internal process um and we've been waiting on um the department of trade and industry to sort of finalize um the draft uh the draft bill and that i mean as soon as that will come out i mean comes out obviously we will have some um, input into that and that will go into parliamentary process but in as far as that process is happening it's quite a slow process and I think you would think that, you know, especially considering that South Africa is now speaking out on the international sort of uh, level about about the barrier that IP is, I mean, I mean, how barrier, I mean, how IP serves as a barrier, you would think that, you know, at a national level, they would sort of expedite that process, but um, nothing much has come out of it, so which is a bit disappointing. Yes, we've all noticed how well we speak internationally and how poorly we speak domestically. Tim Bissila also made a point about we are investing a lot on uh, COVID and the vaccine, but what about HIV, cancer, TB, etc.? Uh, I don't know if anybody on the panel wants to comment on that, because in a way we are preoccupied with COVID right now, but these issues are not unique to COVID. So does anybody want to respond to that? Yeah, I think that um, HIV remains um, a, a serious health crisis in South Africa, and we have done a lot. So our, our current um, numbers are that about 13% of the country is living with HIV, um, and we have about 5 million people on treatment. Um, we've also, uh, you know, as a result of all of the negotiations that have taken place with um, pharmaceutical companies on the back of the litigation that happened early in the 2000s, we actually have the lowest cost ARVs in the world. So we have the largest problem, largest problem. Um, we have a huge burden of HIV, but our government has actually invested a lot to ensure that we have access to the best um, treatment at a low price. Um, and also, I think South Africa leads on TB um, in terms of taking up the new diagnostics um, and the new treatment as it comes online, even where it's, it's expensive, like um, lenozolate, for example. Um, there is access in South Africa. So we're doing what we can, but we know that as a result of, of COVID that people have fallen off of, of, of treatment, um, both HIV and TB, and that we're going to have to build back um, that capacity, bring people back into uh, the system, and I think be more efficient about it. I think we've learned through COVID how to reach people better um, and how to change system and systems and innovate. So we need to be more innovative, I think, but COVID is an emergency that requires, that required a lot of attention. Um, and I think that we responded appropriately as a country, um, but there's a lot of work to be done. And the work that can be done um, is including things like pushing our government on the IP law reform to get it done now, whilst we understand and have a real sense of what these barriers are and what it means for access. So I've put in the chat um, a link to the petition. Please sign it. Um, it. It, in a way, supports the IP waiver, which we think is really important and important to support our government um, at times like this, but also pushes them to, to finalize the law reform. Okay, thanks very much, Romaniana. So I think this, the issue, as you say, we have a crisis now, but it is an issue which will 
if we deal with it appropriately, it will strengthen our health system for a lot of other conditions, and that's how we should try and achieve it. Um, I see Peter made a comment uh, in the chat about uh, Biovac um, has been getting a lot of government support uh, up to now, but um, is only able to do uh, what top and fix and fill and fix, fill and finish. Uh, I don't know if anybody wants to comment on that uh, as to whether we think that's kind of a, an issue for us. Peter, I don't know if you want to elaborate. Maybe I might not have put, you, put your point quite clearly. I think you got it quite clear there, Leslie, that basically the, uh, unfortunately, Biovac is looking like another underperforming state-owned enterprise in terms of lots of investment. And uh, it's not just for um, uh, now with COVID-19, but, uh, you know, BCG vaccination and other important vaccines. We've had shortages in South Africa and we don't seem to have the capacity that we need. Uh, and this is, if this is a problem now, what else would it be a problem for in the future? You know, can we actually trust this investment in Biovac? You know, I think Peter, your point is correct. That um, it is public money that's being invested in an institution. It hasn't. It might not have um, been able to achieve uh, high levels of productivity, but it hasn't put the money in people's pockets, unlike other public institutions we know. Perhaps that's a technical issue around how quickly you can scale up. I do remember an article in the Maverick uh, where I think it was. Um, Shabir Madi commenting that uh, the ability to scale up production for export is, is quite complex and we might be sort of expecting too much or perhaps uh, we don't know all the pieces that need to be in place for that to happen. So maybe that is an area for civil society to be more attentive to. And can I ask if, if there's any comments about concrete actions? So Candice, you mentioned Perhaps one day we'll be campaigning for, uh, against Kefir to make uh, publicly available the proprietary contents of their platform. How, how soon are we going to get there? Yeah, I mean, we're hoping for next year. Um, I think it's, I mean, I think for us it's, it's, it's as mentioned that, you know, with, with, with um, CFIDS gene expert cartridge, it's not going to be just something for COVID-19 alone. I think it's something that will be needed also for TB. So I think it would be a priority also for us, considering our focus also on TB. Um, so at the moment, as I mentioned, that it's still early, very early stages of trying to gather all the evidence. Um, but yeah, hopefully something maybe later next year. Okay, so we have a distribution list from this meeting of people who would uh, get involved and support that. Uh, are there any other suggestions about sort of concrete actions? Uh, Annalene and Lauren, I don't know if you want to speak a little bit around the uh, work PHM is doing with MSF Section 27 around uh, community mobilization and, and with other organization, Cancer Alliance. I don't know if you want to speak about that a little bit, if, if people want to get involved in some way. Uh, sure. Uh, good afternoon, everyone. This is Lauren. Um, so along with Annalene, Leslie and Bridget from PHM South Africa, uh, we're doing a study on barriers to accessing COVID-19 technologies. So that would be um, devices for diagnosing or testing treatment um, and also uh, vaccines, interventions that can help prevent COVID. Um, the study had Two, or has two stages. The first um, was 
consisting of conducting a situational analysis, which was launched officially here today. Uh, and then the second stage consists of monitoring barriers to accessing COVID technologies at national level and also at uh, community level. Um, and so maybe I'll speak about community level because um, part of what we're doing at community level is seeing um, whether we can recruit community monitors. Um, we're hoping to cover six communities across South Africa. And the community monitors um, would be responsible for uh, monitoring whether people have access to basic things like sanitizer, soap and water, masks, um, but also things like tests um, for tracking how quickly people get their test results. Um, and also hopefully for monitoring whether people have access to isolation facilities and referral systems where they need to be hospitalized. So maybe just uh, with respect to that aspect of the project, um, we'll be putting out a call, a recruitment call for monitors. But if you, if you do have someone that has been doing community health activism or has been serving, let's say, in a clinic committee or is a member of a, a CSO that um, works on health, that would be interested in, in doing this work from about January to June next year, um, please get in touch. Um, uh, that's certainly one of the ways in which we want to monitor what's happening over the next six months in South Africa. So the project will wrap up in six months time. Um, and then also we're, we're looking at developing um, a way to um, describe in very simple terms to communities what the WTO is, what TRIPS is, why the waiver is important, um, so that people can participate at um, community level in terms of um, advocating for greater access to essential medicines and, and particularly a way to use uh, patent laws or let's say intellectual property rights laws more broadly uh, in a way that actually promotes pub public health rather than complicates access to essential medicines. So um, I'll leave it there and maybe hand over to Annalene if she wants to add something on uh, vaccine denialism. I think, Lauren, you were very, very complete. The only addition that we would also monitor is the, the sentiment in different communities around the vaccine, because one of the barriers is also the kind of fears and stories that go around in, in, in places around the vaccine. So we would kind of monitor that and then develop material that would debunk the stories, but also explain the questions that people have around the vaccines in communities. So I'm just going to ask uh, Umanyana if there's anything you would like participants in this meeting to do to support the work that Section 27 and fixed patent laws are doing. But also, you know, follow us on, on social media. It's quite easy to, to find us and follow our work. We also are part of a number of uh, initiatives with global civil society, and we often share those things um, with, with, our, with our followers. So there will be actions. For example, there's a, there's a day of action um, next week for the people's vaccine. So following that will be quite important to keep up with what's happening and understand where pressure can be placed. Um, and I think for, for people in South Africa in particular, um, telling stories about COVID-19 um, is really, really important because our government officials need to understand what the real impact is on people. So if you have, you know, people who are willing to come on record and share their experiences, um, that's also something we would like to do. 
um, in addition to the kind of community um, monitoring work is just to record some of the stories. So get in touch with us on that and we'd be happy to share it and then link it to some of the kind of systemic issues to, to be able to achieve the change that we're trying to seek. Uh, thanks, Amanyana. Moifo, um, Porsche. Yes. Yeah, so Moifo uh, asks, will COVID vaccines and medicine be available in public facilities, including free COVID testing? Same applies to Bedaquilin, is available in the public sector. EPS, why do clients have to undergo hearing tests before accessing treatment? So maybe it didn't come through clearly enough. So, so basically, COVID vaccines will be available, but there won't be enough to vaccinate everybody. So the people who will be vaccinated will presumably be on a rationing basis, and we expect that it would be people who are most vulnerable, the people who have other diseases that make them at risk for severe COVID, and um, health workers probably because health workers need to be healthy to treat other people. But we don't really know from government how it's going to work. Um, but it will be available free, so people won't have to pay. It's not clear to us how the private sector will fit in, uh, because it shouldn't be uh, that people can buy a vaccine like you can buy a test, because then there'll be a shortage of vaccines all around. But it's unclear how that would work. Um, I can't comment on the, the Daquilin story, other than there are uh, TB drugs that uh, cause deafness, and so if you already have hearing impairment quite often you tested it's not really for bedaquilin it's for another class of tb drugs so moifo can i suggest if it's not clear to you you just email us and we'll try and get a, a proper answer for you are there any other comments people want to make i know peter's pasted some useful uh, information also about the respirators and moifo has then comment about the respirators failing safety testing protocols we know that and uh, that is one of the problems of procurement of uh, health technologies where we basically relaxed the rules and we ended up allowing in uh, respirators that were not properly um, assessed. Uh, but that is all part of the problem. If we don't have good institutional rules to have good quality um, technology, then we will end up with these kinds of problems. Um, we've now reached almost 3.30, so I think we probably do need to close. I want to thank the speakers and the participants for a really uh, useful discussion. We are going to have this on the PHM website as a, as a recording, so uh, you can go back to this afterwards. Um, and please do sign that petition and um, access the material that have been posted in the chat and on the PHM website for the report. So thanks very much to our speakers and thanks to everyone who participated. Go well. <laughs>